Lord, forgive all our calculated efforts to serve you, only when it is convenient to do so, only in those places where it is safe to do so, and only with those who make it easy for us to do so. Father, forgive us, renew us, and send us out as usable instruments that we might take seriously the meaning of your cross. Amen. And as I was reading through here with you all, and these things about justice uh, and, and poverty and, and working, to make things to be right the way Jesus wants us to, I couldn't help but think of John Perkins. And I already know one of the Christmas presents I'm going to get, his last book called One Blood. And if you don't know who he is, all I'm going to say is Google him. Google him and you will be blessed. But we are in need of forgiveness and we can take comfort in this truth. John wrote in his general letter to the churches some 60 years after Jesus ascended to heaven. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can live the way we've just confessed we don't always live. Amen. And now um, let's sing two more songs. Number 192. How great our joy, and then uh, one of my favorites, 206 Angels We Have Heard.
You may be seated for the reading of the word this morning. Scripture reading this morning is from St. Luke 3, verses 7 through 18. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who shall warn you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruits, is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answereth and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none, and he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans to be baptized, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, and all men used in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and will gather the wheat into his garment, and the chaff will burn with fire unquenchable, and many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. Amen. That's the gospel for this morning. And now, if everyone will take uh, your Sing Joyfully books and turn to number 626 in the back, uh, we will recite the Nicene Creed together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified 
under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. That's a pretty good summary of all of Scripture. And now we will have the lighting of our third Advent candle. During the third week in Advent, we spend time thinking about joy. From Psalm 511, we hear these words. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, so that those who love your name may exalt in you. We light the candle of hope first, then peace, and finally, joy. Too often, we think joy is something big, oh God. A brass band or a parade can certainly bring us joy. Just as easily and far more often, we can feel joy in a hug or the squeeze of a hand. We can see joy in a smile or hear it in laughter. Help us to not overlook the simple joys that peek into our daily lives daily. This week in our Advent journey, open our eyes to the joy that surrounds us. Amen. And now, uh, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you that you sent your Son down to earth as one of us, so we can know you. Also, to know that he paid the price for our redemption in order for us to be reconciled to you through the repentance of faith so that we may bear fruit that will last as long as we remain in him. So our first request is this, that you will increase our awe of you. May we experience your holy perfection in our hearts and minds every moment of every day, waking or sleeping. I know the best days of my life have been lived in this awareness of you. So therefore, please give this awareness to all of us. <clears throat> and Lord, we are an outpost of your kingdom on this earth. Therefore, help us to bring more and more people into the protection and abundance of your kingdom. Please also 
Help us to bring the truth of your life-giving and life-changing love to the people you have placed in our lives in the power, wisdom, strength, and love of the Holy Spirit. And please also prepare the hearts of people to be ready to receive our witness in both words and acts of empowered love. And Father, we pray for our nation in this world. Please fill us, fill us with the hope, peace, joy, and love of the Savior so that others may see him in us and then receive him themselves so that they can be set free from the fear of death. Holy Spirit, move in all human hearts in order to remove the blindness so as to know that all of those who are not in Christ and filled with His Spirit after repenting and receiving Jesus, those people are still dead in sin. And then open these people up to the gospel of Christmas, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, and Pentecost. We pray for our nation and our leaders, both the current president and the president-elect, both of the parties that are in Congress, our state leaders, our city, town, and county officials, Lord, please open our hearts that we may hear each other and respect each other even when we disagree. And we do pray for an effective and morally produced and tested vaccine. The more the better. And we also know that you can stop this pandemic at any time you so desire. So please help us all to learn to learn that we are not in control and that life is very, very precious, all life, even if and when it is frail. And Father, we pray for our local cell in your body. Please fill all of our members that are experiencing any kind of depression, whether slight or severe. Fill them with the love and joy of the Holy Spirit. And then physically speaking, strengthen all of those with cancer in their bodies. We know there's a few at least. Give them hope in the presence of your strong love. Your strong love. Let them know that you are with them and in them. And also, um, this is nothing to be considered a lesser thing. There are people with joint and back and other kinds of problems. Um, these are difficult to be with them. And Father, we pray also for those confined because of safety concerns. Let them know that they are free in your spirit. You give them freedom in your word and in singing. And please, 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 Give wisdom and strength of character so that people will not act to harm themselves or other people. And then now please speak to our inner self 
through both the Gospel and the New Testament. Guide every word I say, and then apply your word and the um, exposition, interpretation, and application of it to each and every heart that is here by your Holy Spirit with what we need so that we can be more like Jesus individually and together. We ask it in his name, and now we come before you in the words of the prayer he gave to his disciples to pray. With one heart and one voice we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. And now uh, we will sing one more song before going into the word. Uh, number 219, Ask with Gladness. Men of hope. Each of us 
each of us capable of feeling guilt, both over who we are and what we have done, what we do. And the word for this in human language is conscience. Okay? Now, the Bible says in one of the wisdom books that God has put something of eternity in every human heart to know the best way to live in order to rejoice and see what is good and that what is good is a gift of God in our lives. You can see that in Ecclesiastes chapter uh, 3. Now the problem, however, is that every human being um, that we must confront, okay? We don't like to think about this. We can just push it away. But every one of us is born, born into this world um, with the, uh, without. We don't have. It's just universal. We can't always, always, always do what is right. And we can't always think what is right. And we can't always feel what is right. In fact, the Apostle Paul described this in his letter to those who were called to be holy in the city of Rome, in the churches there, and he used poetic images from one of the Psalms. And he also stated some truths. So he started out and says, no one does good. Later on, he said, their throats are open graves. And then he says, the poison of vipers is on their tongues. I think John knew this when he was giving the prophecy we heard just a little while ago. And they do not know the way of peace. Now, the third Sunday of Advent originally focused on John the Baptist. But in the last few centuries, starting probably early in the, the 19th century, uh, it has now come to be the Sunday of joy. Okay, the joy that God gives to those who are reconciled to him um, through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, his eternal spirit son also became a human being when he was born to a woman named Mary. And he became human like us in order to save us and to redeem us. And I believe it was St. Anselm who came to this conclusion, only flesh and blood can redeem flesh and blood. That's why the miracle of Christmas. Now in our passage today, John comes right out uh, and says to all of those who are coming to him to be baptized in water, he says, you're a generation of vipers. Now, um, he commands them then to make fruit. That's the most simplest translation of bearing fruit in what we heard in the King James. Make fruit worthy of repentance. And what is repentance is when we turn from ourselves, our self-reliance, to total dependence on God. 
We can do nothing without God. And then he tells the crowds that the Messiah who is coming after him will baptize them in the Holy Spirit and fire. Now there are two aspects to fire. To be on fire for God or to be burned up if we oppose God. And he says those who do not turn to God with all their soul will be burned in the fire. But those who do fully turn to God will experience the fruit of the Holy Spirit. How do we bear fruit which God commands of us? Only by being filled with the Holy Spirit. So now let's look at our passage in the Gospel of Luke, but in light of the New Testament. So we'll start with our passage. There's two parts to it. And in the first part, it's simply um, what Luke had found under the leading of the Holy Spirit about John's baptizing ministry. He baptizes the crowds and he calls them to fruitful repentance and with specific results. See, that's one of the unique things about the Bible is there's a lot of really practical stuff in it and you have to read it and search it out to find it. So it begins with baptizing the crowds. John commands them to make fruit of repentance or be cut down and burned. So the first sentence says, John was saying to the crowds coming to be baptized, generation of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, that's, that's the way prophets are. They're very blunt. They don't pull any punches. They just lay it out there for what it's worth. And people, this is a painful truth. I alluded to it in the introduction. We do not want to be reminded that we are all sinners and we are capable of poisoning other people. But then he continues on, so make fruit worthy of repentance. And I thought about this, this is also in the Gospels, in a very different Gospel, the Gospel of John. John brings us in on what was happening in the upper room. And Jesus said to them before going to the cross, I am the vine. And if any branch will remain in me, that branch, that person, will bring forth fruit that will remain. It's about remaining in Jesus, but Jesus hadn't done his ministry yet. This is a, a, a foretaste of it, a prophetic foretaste. And then he says to them, because the Jews of that day, particularly the Pharisees, were very proud. They thought they had a, a birthright. And he says, do not say to yourselves, Abraham is our father, because I'm telling you, God is able. Hear this. It sounds extreme. From these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Now, this is something Paul would write about after Pentecost. The biological descent, the pure DNA, Abraham's DNA is in me, doesn't really matter to God. What does matter is Abraham-like faith. Read Romans 4. 
Now, what can God do? When he's talking about stones, he's talking about the hardest heart of a non-Jewish person who may not even know the Torah. God is able to make true children of him. This happens after what Jesus did and through the gospel. God can make any hard heart into his child if that one will repent. So ask to bear fruit. And then he says, but the axe is also appointed to the root of the trees, so every tree not making good fruit, not making good fruit, is being cut down and into the fire thrown. And as I was thinking about this, I think the word order is so important. Picture this now. Picture there's all of these dead trees. There's nothing on the branches. No fruit, no leaves, no nothing. They're in the process of being cut down and piled up. On the other side, you've got this bonfire going, this great big huge fire. And now just picture, because he ends with the throne, these angels are taking the dead trees and just throwing them, one tree after another, into the fire to be consumed. That's the word picture John is describing here, but it's very, very real. So, to produce good fruit, a person must turn, turn away from trust in his or her own efforts. Oh, I got this, God. I can do this. Every time I've ever said that, I've fallen on my face because God is good and he loves us. We must come to God in humble, dependent, childlike faith in those who fully and sincerely live a life of repentance will be graciously given strength and love to make good fruit. So what John is commanding here is not impossible if we have dependent, humble faith in God. So those who repent, who just admit, I can't do it alone, God. I need you. Give up on ourselves. Fully trust in him. They bear or make fruit, good fruit. And then there's a transition. The crowds heard this, and some of them were cut to the quick, and they said, they asked him, what should we do? And John responds to their questions, commanding sharing, obedience, and contentment. So three different kinds of people are addressed here. And we will all fall into at least one category, and all of these things we should apply in our lives. He says, if a man has two tunics, extra clothing, he doesn't need, share with one who doesn't have a tunic. And if you've got much food, do likewise. What is he basically saying here? This is about living a life of generosity. And I think we've heard this a lot on the news this year. In God's kingdom, the haves must and should joyfully, generously help the have-nots. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. We will be judged 
on how we respond to the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien. That's from Moses on. Jesus came to fulfill Moses. And then taxmen, publicans, they were coming to also be baptized. He was not turning them away, but they said, Teacher, teacher, what should we do? And he said, Nothing more than has been ordained to you. You must be exacting as your tax. We've probably all heard this story. It bears repeating. In those days, it could be a, a, a boon to be a tax collector because they weren't closely supervised. And the vast majority of them overtaxed the people. Rome may have been expecting X, and they were taking 50 or 100% more than what was required. So what he's saying is just follow orders. Whatever you must exact because of what the government says, that and not one penny more. So obedience, obedience even to human authorities. And you can read all of that played out in the New Testament when Paul wrote to the church in Rome, the seat of the government that collected taxes. And then soldiers were asking him, what also should we do? And he said, do not extort money or accuse falsely. Be content with your wages. There's a real temptation for soldiers to be both. They have the swords, they have the weapons, they have the power. They can take advantage of people. He's saying, don't. You're being paid by the Roman government to do this job. Just be content. And I think of the end of the first letter that Paul wrote to his protege Timothy, his son in the faith, as Timothy was taking on the pastoral role in the churches in Ephesus. And he said, remind these rich people, these people that want to lord it over people and take advantage of people, that godliness with contentment is the greatest gain. John is anticipating that truth and saying it in his own words and in his own context. Be content. So what should we be doing as we have opportunity? Share. Obey the ruling authorities as long as what they say is consistent with the word of God. And be content. Don't go grabbing after every last dollar. In fact, this just came to me. I used to hear in the corporate world that it would make my blood cringe as an assistant vice president when a vice president would say, we don't want to leave one dollar of profit on the table. Sometimes it's okay to do that. In fact, we should. Then John goes on in the second part, not just what was happening while he was baptizing people for repentance, he begins to tell these people who are expecting Messiah, I'm not the one. It's not me, people. But the one who's coming will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. So firstly, again, Luke, ever the historian, is telling us facts as he's narrating the truth of God in the gospel. The people were watching in hope and reasoning in their hearts, if John was the Messiah, he said, no. Plain and simple, it's not me. So, they were expecting, okay? Now remember, last week, 
we looked at Malachi and to us only seven days have gone by. Well, in the real world of history, we are now 450 years after Malachi, the last writing prophet in Scripture had prophesied. And we heard last week that the one whom you are expecting and whom you eagerly desire, he will suddenly come to the temple. And there was just this, it had been so long, kind of like we're just saying, when's Jesus going to come back? This world is falling apart more every year. He's promised to come back and make everything right. They were looking, 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 and because... John was such a powerful prophet and people were coming to him and being baptized for repentance and being cleansed. They were saying, could he be Messiah? This word reasoning in their hearts. If you get a, a dictionary and look out the root for the word dialogue, it comes from this Greek word. So deep within their souls, they're having these little conversations with, you know, involving God. Is he the one? Is he the one? And they actually articulate it. They articulate it. And John answered them, I indeed, I am baptizing you, but in water. You see, again, this water baptism was for repentance, to turn away from my own selfish desires and turn to God in expectation, in expectation, waiting, waiting, waiting. That was what he was doing. They were being cleansed because he could come at any moment and they need to be ready and prepared when he comes. Okay. But the one mightier than me is coming of whom I am not sufficient to loosen the thong on his sandals. Again, he uses an image, an image that they would have known. We don't live in the first century Mediterranean area. But I looked this up just to be sure of it. Taking the shoes or sandals off of a master was the lowest duty that could ever be assigned to a slave. Only the slave that was in the illest favor, if that's such a word, of his master would be required to do that. And John says, the Messiah is so much greater than I. I am less than the lowest of servants. It's not me you're looking for. I am not able. Okay? Then he says, Messiah will baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire, gathering wheat and burning chaff. So he comes right out and says it. Messiah will baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus came to baptize people, immerse people in the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, but this fire has a two-edged sword as he goes on. He says, the winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. Now, I don't know if you know, but, but every harvest field had a raised area that was flat with nothing on it. And when they would bring in the harvest, there would be wheat, but there would also be chaff. And what they would do is they would take a spade and throw it up. The wheat being heavier than the chaff would settle down, and because it was high up, the wind would just blow the chaff away. That's the image that's being used here. 
And um, last week we heard Micah, he, under inspiration, asked these questions. Who can endure when this one comes, when the Messiah comes? And then he laid out five groups of extreme covenant breakers and said they won't endure. They will come under God's wrath. And so this is what's being said here. The wheat, okay, and wheat is used to make bread, which was one of their nutritional staples of their diet. That will be gathered into the barn and used for good purposes. However, however, the wicked, the chaff, he will burn it with fire unquenchable. Now, chaff has no nutritional value. And now, uh, fire, okay, burned up, just like he had said earlier uh, in his prophetic words and exposition, Messiah is going to do that. And I found it very interesting that the word for unquenchable is indeed our word asbestos. So what he's saying is this fire is going to be so extreme, you better have an asbestos suit on if you want to survive it. And indeed, many other words exhorting, he was preaching good news to them. Now I looked up exhortation. I think we all have this feeling that we know what words mean, but it's a very interesting word. It's like two sides of a coin or a double-edged sword. It can mean either to beseech, admonish, confront, or to comfort. But I thought about this. What is an exhortation? It's an earnest warning in order to urge people to right action. Why are they urged to right action? In order they may experience the comfort of God. It's a both and. Sometimes we need a wake-up call and a strong push to go in the right direction, and then going in that direction towards God, we experience His comfort. So an exhortation is both and. It has to be strong in order to enjoy the comfort that comes from God. And it's the gospel, the good news, that all people who turn from themselves and their ways to God in His way, and that's easier said than done, people. But if we can do that, then he will enable us to live a life pleasing to him, bearing fruit, which is resulting in joy, fruit of joy. Those who repent bear the fruit of joy. Now what I want to do is to look at four passages in the New Testament reinforcing the connection between the Holy Spirit and joy. Because it's not spelled out in this gospel, but we need the Holy Spirit if we're going to have joy. First place we'll stop is the book of Acts, chapter 13, and we will see the joy that comes to new converts, people who have newly been filled with the Holy Spirit and received Jesus as their Savior. We're told that Paul and his companions went to a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch on the Sabbath. Where was the region of Pisidia? Right smack dab in the middle of what is now Turkey. And Paul got up and he preached this long sermon uh, to both the men of Israel and God-fearers who were not descended from Abraham. 
And uh, he began by telling the story, it's so important, of how God delivered his people from physical bondage and slavery in Egypt. Why is that so important? Because Jesus came to free us all from the bondage of sin, which is even worse than that. And then he gives all these historical highlights all the way up until David, until King David. And then he says, and now, just in the last, you know, 10 years, God has brought the promised Savior from the line of David, and we went into the prophecies last year. And then he concludes, forgiveness and justification is through him. And I told you how John said that very thing, for if we confess our sins. And they were invited back to speak the next Sabbath. So Paul and Barnabas came back and they spoke and were told many Jews and many non-Jews came to saving faith in the Lord. Now the stubborn, hard-hearted Jews, the ones that were rocks and couldn't be made into children of God, weren't made into children of God, persecuted Paul and Barnabas and just ran them out of town. But here's the bottom line, hear this. The disciples, the new converts that had only been following Jesus for a week or so, were told they were filled with the Holy Spirit and with joy. Joy results from being filled with God's Spirit. Secondly, let's go to what Paul said in Romans. This is a really neat little paragraph. Joy is the result of peace with God and having God's righteousness. So Paul starts out and he says, Rather than judge one another on disputable matters such as the food we eat, let us walk conducting our lives in God's love. And I call this legalism versus love. Okay? Love must win over. Don't live by rules Jesus said they no longer apply. You might remember in the Gospels, this in Mark and many other Gospels, Jesus declared all foods to be clean in his teaching. Okay. Then he says, because God's kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What is righteousness? We don't have our own righteousness, but God gives us his righteousness in Christ. You can find it many places, especially 2 Corinthians 5. That's not in your outline. It just came to me. We have it in Christ by grace, by faith. So here's an application, people. An application. Let us seek the righteousness of God in Jesus with the result that it will be joy. And I just realized I had an application to make. Uh, and Shakespeare even joked about it. New converts are filled with joy. Okay, I've been following Jesus for 41 years now. Our challenge this Advent while we're waiting for him to come back a second time, let us maintain our joy in the Holy Spirit no matter what. And then um, here's a truth that I want us to realize because a lot of people will seek joy and try to earn it somehow. No, the righteousness God gives us in Christ leads to peace with God and the result is joy, 
Okay? The result is joy. Joy is not an end or goal that we can ever pursue. It's always the gracious result of repenting, giving up our ways, following God in His ways. So those who repent are filled, are filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with the joy that we may bear fruit. Thirdly, Galatians 5, you knew I'd get there eventually. Those who have died to sin in Christ have the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, again, that leads to joy. So he has a big build-up to that ninefold fruit. He says, those who are walking in the Spirit and led by the Spirit will not succumb to the desires of the body, those desires that oppose God's instructions for life given through Moses. And let me just say something. One of the first questions I'm going to have for God is, why did you ever let those rabbis who translated uh, the Hebrew into Greek in the time between Malachi and Jesus to ever use law for Torah? I mean, I'm not an expert in Hebrew, but I know that Torah is from the word for learning or instruction. God's Torah was instructions given in grace so that we could enjoy his presence and have the covenant sealed. It's by no means a legalistic law. So I always read Torah for law whenever I'm reading the New Testament. It's God's way of life. And it's the Spirit who keeps us from our sinful desires. He brings dead spirits to life so that people are no longer controlled by their sinful desires. And if there's anyone here this morning who is still dead in sin, I pray that one will receive the Holy Spirit by grace and faith and begin to walk and live with God. Then Paul lists out, I'm not going to enumerate, 17 practices from the desires of our body. We call them the works of the flesh. And he says, anyone who practices these as a habit is excluded from the kingdom of God. You will not enter into God's kingdom and enjoy him. But the ninefold fruit of the Holy Spirit is listed with love and joy and peace in the lead place. Those who are in Christ have this fruit in them as they live on this earth. Let us crucify, crucify our sin in Christ. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit enables us, enables us, in the words of Paul, to crucify the affections and the lusts of our bodily desires. Don't let the body rule over you, and don't give in to the weakest impulses. And then finally, in 1 Thessalonians 1, I really came to love this about uh, 30 years ago. Imitators of the Lord have joy. And this is a beautiful chapter. It's short. Read at any time. The church in Thessalonica, they display the work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope in the Lord Jesus before the very presence and face of Father God. Faith, hope, and love. That's very much emphasized at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. And the gospel came to them in word and power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul and his team were used by God to make disciples for Jesus. And here's the bottom line. 
These new converts, these new disciples became imitators of the Lord, having received the word, and now here, this is the bottom line, the last point, I say the best for last. They received it in tribulation with joy. The joy of the Holy Spirit. All who follow Jesus as his spirit-filled disciples become imitators to be an example to those who are not yet following him. However, there were many, they were having much tribulation in Thessalonica when they became followers of Jesus. And here's the truth, people. I didn't really have this. I was such a sinner, I was just wrestling with my sins when I was first saved. But many times those who become followers of Jesus, especially in countries where Christians are persecuted, they experience more suffering when they come to the Lord than when they were still dead in their sins. Like Jesus said, sinners don't hate sinners with more than the usual hatred, but they really go after those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. So here's the paradox of faith. God gives joy to all who come to him in continual repentance, even in great suffering. So here's our challenge this morning. May we turn to the Lord, even now, and seek Him. Turn to Him and seek Him, even in the midst of the most out-of-control pandemic any of us have ever lived through. I drove by Ralph Densmore's house this week because he was born in 1910 and I used to visit him every month and bring him communion and listen to him tell the story of his life. He was 18 years old, he got the Spanish flu and recovered. His brother was one of the first to get it because he had just enlisted in the army and was stationed in Devons. They got through this by the grace of God and we can get through this if we allow the Spirit to fill us and we do not lose the joy, which is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, those who repent and turn from ourselves and our own troubled thoughts to God, we will bear fruit and we will have joy. Let me just summarize the Gospel text. As John is baptizing the crowds, he commands them, to make fruit worthy of repentance, giving specific examples while warning of the judgment from the coming Messiah to those who do not make good fruit. So we can't just sit still. We need to be bearing fruit for God and Jesus. And then he concludes by preaching the good news of the Holy Spirit whom the Messiah will give to those who continually and fully turn to Him so that they can have the joy of God's love. People, let us not stop pursuing God. We can complain about everything that's going on around us or we can double down in our pursuit of God. May we do that. It's difficult but not impossible.
with the Holy Spirit of God. And now let's sing for our closing song, Joy to the World. This talks about forms and all these things, but we can still have the joy of the Lord. It is number 194.
For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And saint doesn't mean we're perfect. It just means we are being made holy by Jesus in order to do what is pleasing to him to build his kingdom. Amen. Thank you.